On March 9, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a discussion on the crisis facing the United States criminal justice system. The event, entitled Why Mass Incarceration Matters to Our Cities, Economy, and Democracy, featured a panel of Heather Ann Thompson, Professor of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, Elizabeth Hinton, Assistant Professor of History and African-American Studies at Harvard University, and Philip Goff, Visiting Scholar at the Malcolm Weiner Center for Social Policy. The event was part of the Ash Center's Race and American Politics Seminar Series and was moderated by Harvard Kennedy School Assistant Professor of Public Policy, Leah wright Rigger. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. We are very lucky today to have an all-star lineup um, uh, talking to us about mass incarceration. Um, so our, our star of the hour is really Heather Ann Thompson, but we have two other people here who are also stars in their own right. Um, and I, I want to go through a very quick introduction um, for everyone. So the first person I'd like to introduce uh, is Philip Goff, who's an associate professor of psychology at UCLA, um, a visiting professor here at the Kennedy School, so take advantage while he's here, um, and the co-founder and president of the Center for Police Equity. Uh, he's an expert on race, policing, and intersectional identity. His research examines uh, ways in which environmental factors can produce racially disparate outcomes. And in doing such research, his goal is to expand the scope of what comes to mind when one thinks of the uh, causes and consequences of inequality. Um, and I really encourage you to go take a look um, at Professor Goff's website. Um, he has been um, very much quoted all over the place, especially of recent. Um, next up, we have Elizabeth Hinton, who is an assistant professor in the Department of History and African American Studies here at Harvard. So again, take advantage. Um, her research focuses on the persistence of poverty and racial inequality in the United States. Now her forthcoming book, and this one is going to be a doozy, and it's coming out very, very soon, so congratulations are, uh, are, are forthcoming. Um, but From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, the Making of Mass Incarceration in America, it examines the implementation of federal law enforcement programs beginning in the mid-1960s that laid the groundwork for the mass incarceration of American citizens. Now her book does a fantastic job of revealing the links between the rise of the American carceral state and earlier anti-poverty programs. And in doing so, really suggests that Ronald Reagan's war on drugs uh, was not a sharp policy departure, but rather was a full realization of a shift towards surveillance and confinement that began during the Johnson administration. So doing some really exciting and provocative work, and we will definitely hear from, from both of them uh, a little bit later on. Um, but now I'd like to turn our attention to uh, Heather Ann Thompson who was kind enough to visit from uh, the great state of Michigan, the exciting state of Michigan. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, Heather Ann Thompson is a professor at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Uh, she is in the midst, I think the <coughs> final, final, final stages of finishing her eagerly anticipated book, um, an already award-winning book, I should mention, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, which documents and analyzes the Attica Prison Rebellion of 1971 and its legacy and impact, um, and will be re-released re um, in time for the 45th anniversary of the Attica Rebellion. And I just want to make sure that's... August. that's the, okay, August. Um, 
Great. Um, now, Dr. Thompson is also a prolific writer, having written across popular and scholarly platforms, and I cannot stress this enough. Um, right now, she is everywhere. Um, it feels like I, I can't open up a, a magazine or a journal without seeing a citation or a reference um, to Dr. Thompson's work, and that's because it is so critical and so important. She's been tireless in her willingness to publicize the issue of mass incarceration, and I should note that she was doing this well before uh, it was uh, mass incarceration was part of popular consciousness. And in fact, her tireless work has contributed, I would argue, to a shift in the national conversation on mass incarceration. Now, Dr. Thompson has also served on the National Academy of Sciences Blue Ribbon Panel uh, that studied the causes and consequences of mass incarceration in the US. She's also served on the boards of several policy groups, um, on innumerable uh, uh, advisory capacities, and many more organizations um, uh, focused on prison reform, mass incarceration, and societal change. She's presented broadly, both domestically, to historic groups like the Bipartisan Summit on Criminal Justice Reform, um, and internationally to working groups in areas including Switzerland, Germany, and Ireland. Uh, now, I should also note, in addition to all of this, Dr. Thompson is also the author of several other books, including the in, uh, edited collection, Speaking Out, Protest and Activism in the 1960s and 1970s, and fittingly, because I think you are um, from Detroit, right? Um, Who's Detroit? Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. Thank you. Yes, I will stand. Thank you so much uh, to Leah and to the Ash Center for putting this on. Um, and I, I, I am just so happy to be here. I'm so glad it's 80 degrees, although I would have dressed a little differently <laughs> had, I, had I understood what was happening. Um, so what I want to do is, uh, I think, just set the stage for a discussion we're going to have as a group. And I debated about how to, to frame this. And, and partially, I was tempted to make this more of a scholarly talk and talk about you know, why understanding mass incarceration completely shifts the way we understand uh, the post-war United States and to come at this more as a historian. And then I decided, no, what I want to do is to actually give you a thumbnail version of the talk that I give really around the country now. And sometimes it's to police officers, and sometimes it's to groups of formerly incarcerated people, and sometimes it's to prosecutors. It just completely depends. But um, it's the talk that I give to kind of set up the imperative for doing something about the carceral crisis that we're in. And I want to do that just to kind of give us a little bit of background for the discussion we're going to have, but also to end this with a discussion about the reform efforts underway, because I've had the opportunity to be a part of some of those. And I think that's where the interesting conversation really is today. In other words, what are the perils? What are the possibilities of ending mass incarceration? So just without further ado, I think I'll just walk through some of these slides. Um, the first thing I try to tell everybody that, interestingly, people now are finally getting is that uh, mass incarceration really is the civil rights crisis of the 21st century. And believe it or not, if I said, when I did say this three years ago in public talks, people would look at me askance. And of course, what they're thinking is, you know, I mean, that's a pretty big statement. I mean, you know, civil rights crises, they're thinking about like educational inequity or income inequality. There's a million things you think of, but, but mass incarceration is one of those things. How can it be the thing? Well, I want to make the case that it's the thing because it makes all those other things much, much worse. 
And so to understand this, we have to really understand how massive it is. And just really quickly, if you look at the slide, you get a sense of how massive this is. When we talk about prisons, we often just talk about state prisons. But you quickly <coughs> see that's just the, the, I mean, that's just the beginning. You're talking about the, uh, the jail system, the federal prison system. And if you go over to the right, um, the slice of it that's immigration detention and juvenile justice, this is a huge apparatus of still about two million people in prison despite all this talk about decarceration we've been having. Um, still more than seven million people with a record and uh, still about 65 million Americans with a criminal justice record for God's sakes. So you're talking about something that is an international outlier, but it's also historically unprecedented for us. And so I'm really pleased that historians are finally at the table in this discussion uh, because I think we have a lot to say. As you all know, this is not just any population. This is a hugely racially disproportionate population. And I pull up this slide in case you're ever wondering why it is so disproportionate. This is marijuana arrests, just to pick one thing in the 25 most populous counties in the United States. And the thing is, when white people tell the truth, they admit that they like marijuana as much, if not more, than the next group of people on the planet. And yet, you would not know that from these slides. The disproportionality is staggering. And this is just one of many slides that I could give you. Um, so the question is, why did we do this, right? This is enormously expensive. It's enormously unjust. It's immoral, as I think I'll show you in a moment. And the question is, then why do we do it? Well, most Americans, if you ask them even today, they would say, well, you know, mass incarceration is kind of icky, and I agree with that. Ugh, maybe I don't want to do it anymore. But we had to do it. Because you know the 60s, Everybody's out of control in the 60s, right? You're in Times Square in the 60s and anything goes and it's all kind of out of control. And, and then the 70s, God forbid, is even worse. Well, the interesting thing is we've had the opportunity to really go back and look at this. And what we discover is that no, we actually start this war on crime and Elizabeth's work is gonna show this beautifully before we have any kind of crime crisis. And in fact, we do this as a policy choice not as a crime imperative. And this is really important, because if we can choose something, then presumably we can unchoose it. But we have to really understand the reasons why we chose it. So for starters, as I said, the crime rate is historically unremarkable. This is the homicide rate, and I always pick this one because it's kind of clear you're either dead or you're not in terms of what crime is. And you notice something pretty staggering, which is in 1965 when we actually begin the war on crime, before Nixon, this is actually under Johnson's watch as Elizabeth's work shows, um, you know, the crime rate is remarkably low. In fact, you're probably safer in 1965 by a long shot than you were in 1933. So what is going on? Well, what was going on was a lot of complicated things, but one of the complicated things was the civil <coughs> rights movement, which had been in the South, and it was so far away that you know, the, pr the presidents and all the northern mayors could look down there and say, yeah, you know, right, those southern racist crackers, we need to go down and support civil rights, to the extent they did. Um, and they're willing to support something and would disagree with Sheriff Bull Connor and others who said, uh, you know, those aren't civil rights protesters, those are criminals, those are thugs, they're all about disorder in the streets. Well, in 1964, and actually before that, the civil rights movement really comes north, right? And so in 1964, Philadelphia's <laughs> exploding, Harlem is exploding, Rochester is exploding, 
And then all of a sudden, for so many of those politicians, and this is definitely the thumbnail version of this, but so many of those politicians are looking around, and all of a sudden, they start to sound just like Southern sheriffs, right? This isn't civil rights. This is disorder. This is criminal behavior. These are thugs in the street. And this kind of language of criminality just seeps into the social uh, fabric in a way that's profound. And overnight, we begin the war on crime. Again, a choice, a choice, a political choice. We, we did this before, by the way. Right after the American Civil War, we have four million newly freed people. The response of Southern whites is to immediately criminalize blacks' face to lock up black citizens in record numbers. So like the Georgia State Penitentiary, which is all white in 1863, by 1893 is all black, but not because all of a sudden whites stop committing crime and black folks lose their mind, but because it was a policy choice, a very effective one for harnessing labor, for harnessing political power, and so forth. So, really quickly, because I want to go through this super quickly, and then it starts, right? We get this massive war on crime, which was, again, just like after 1865, after 1965, we criminalized black and brown spaces at record levels, which means passing new laws, uh, making things criminal that had not been criminal, making things that had been criminal newly more criminal. <laughs> We have hyper-policing, which Phil will talk about. We have a, a whole new intensity of policing in black and brown spaces. The result of all of this is mass incarceration. But mass incarceration is also coming from the fact that we're locking people up longer, longer than any other country in any other moment in our time, right? So more life sentences, fewer, you know, much more uh, handing out of life without the possibility of parole, including for children. Detroit and Philly, my two, uh, my two recent places of residence, have more children locked up than any other state in the country. And they have fought tooth and nail to keep them under this no possibility of parole ruling, even though the Supreme Court now says you can't do that. So you're talking about a punitive culture, a culture that has locked up people longer, criminalized only some people a lot, and keeps them in the system longer. We have the longest uh, probation apparatus of any other country as well. We are so far an outlier in how long we keep people ensnared in the system, which is another piece of this. The fallout from this is dramatic. This is Detroit, and I always use this slide because this is the east side of Detroit, formerly one of the most vibrant parts of my city. Right now, one in 22 people under some form of correctional control. This is one neighborhood on the east side, one in 16. So you're literally talking about a social crisis of epic proportions. You are emptying out entire sections of entire cities. And you're not just emptying them out, you're putting them under historically new levels of surveillance. This is Los Angeles. These are gang injunction areas, 72 neighborhoods, again, overwhelmingly black and brown neighborhoods. And once you're on a, in a million dollar block, like I showed you before, or a gang injunction neighborhood, anything goes. Any form of surveillance, sharing of information between the police and the school system, between the police and the welfare system, and we have, again, a crisis situation that has fallout for the community. We orphan generations of children. We traumatize generations of children. I always tell the story, and I'm really promised wrapping up quickly, 
but it just sticks with me. Um, this was a story told to uh, a friend of mine who's an attorney from a police uh, official in New York. And he says, you know, when we do drug busts now, we always bring a sheet. Why do you know, why? Why bring a sheet? Well, because most people have dogs, and the first thing we do in a bust is we have to shoot the dog, and the children are so traumatized from watching their dog bleed out that now we know we just have to bring the sheet because then that just, you know, makes it easier for us to do our job. I tell that story not to be graphic, but actually to just demonstrate when I say that this is altering and changing communities, we are talking about a degree of, for example, post-traumatic stress that we've not seen uh, before. We have created a class of permanently unemployable citizens, right? Because if you have a record, you can't ever get out of this. And if you can't get a job and you can't get welfare, because of course that's the other thing, right? If you have a record, you can't get public housing in many places, you can't get food stamps. What a surprise. Oh, and then you can't get a job. You can't get financial aid if you have a record. You can't go to school if you have a record. You can't do any. What's the upshot of this? Well, what a surprise. We have 78% recidivism. <laughs> you know, if you, if you can't get a job and you can't eat within two weeks of being let out, what happens? You recidivate. Otherwise known as you need to eat and you need to, eat and you need to sleep. Um, but, but the end result of this is an erosion of communities and also fundamentally, and I, and I know Phil will talk about this, a real escalation of violence, mass incarceration actually makes us much less safe. This is one of the deepest tragedies and ironies of this. So violence, both because we have criminalized the only remaining occupation left in most of these destroyed neighborhoods, which is an illegal economy of drugs, right? Which is, of course, inherently an economy of guns and protecting turf and so forth. But also a rise in violence, police violence, which again, Phil will pick up on. I mean, for God's sakes, if you look at most of the police shootings we've had, what you'll notice about them is they all resulted from low-level policing gone wrong, right? Eric Garner, we all focus on him saying, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe. Well, if you, if you roll back that tape just a tad, what he's saying is, can you guys just stop hassling me? I'm just trying to make a living here, right? But it goes all wrong because even police officers are in this vortex of hyper punitive policing and incarceration, which creates a very unsafe situation, not just you know, for, for everybody, for them, for the community, for everybody. So the fallout from this is tremendous. There's economic fallout as well, right? We have a new era of exploitation of prison labor. Um, we had that also after the Civil War, right? We lock up black folks in new record numbers and then we put them to work, which is how the New South is effectively built. After 1965, we do the same thing. Most prison labor had been outlawed until we get mass incarceration and companies go back and they say, let's get rid of all those regulations. And they do. And so now we have, again, a new level of economic exploitation in prisons, undermining of the free world economy because now, for example, Kevlar vests to be built for the Iraq war aren't made on the outside, they're made in federal prisons. Again, nothing wrong with prison labor per se, right? Work is good, job training's good. The problem is exploitation. And we've revisited that, we've returned to that. So why haven't we done anything about this? Or more importantly, why haven't the people most affected done anything by it? Because mass incarceration keeps its own safety valve. 
We have disfranchised the same people that we've locked up, just like we did after the Civil War, taken away political power, which, as the political scientists will tell you, have, has absolutely changed political outcomes, senatorial races, arguably presidential races, if you remember a guy named Al Gore, and prison gerrymandering. You're not counted in the census where you live. You're counted where you're locked up. It's kind of like the three-fifths clause of the 19th century, too, right? You can't vote, but your body is used as political power in one of these all-white counties that wants to build prisons. So Philadelphia, eight House districts simply wouldn't exist if they didn't count prisoners who can't vote for the bodies of the white people that live there who vote Republican, who vote for mandatory minimums, who vote for drug laws, and so we start to begin to understand why it is that the people most affected by this have such a hard time changing this through the system. Because they've been shut out of that system. Now, here's where I end. They are still speaking out. We are getting a lot of people speaking out. They're just not doing it through the ballot box. They're doing it by marching through Ferguson. <laughs> They're doing it in Baltimore. They're doing it in Chicago. And the thing is that people on high have started to notice. I had the opportunity to be part of this bipartisan summit on criminal justice reform, as well as talk to Congress and so forth on this issue. And I'm firmly, excuse me, I am firmly convinced that the, that the interest <coughs> in doing this is very much being pushed from below. To be sure, some people want to talk about this because prisons are too expensive, it's now out of control, but they're also terrified of social disruption, right? Prosecutors are worried that there's going to be an explosion in Detroit now, just like there was in Ferguson. People are really worried that this is not a tenable social policy and that we need to start re talk about reforming it. So I'll leave us here. Um, I would love to talk about this moment we're in. I think that there are extraordinary possibilities. I sat in this event with 1,500 people kind of sh shaking my head. I mean, in the same place, we had the Koch brothers, the ACLU, Eric Holder, um, you know, Newt Gingrich, it was crazy. It, you know, I was like, what? But at the same time, I mean, I had tears in my eyes because I couldn't believe we had almost 2,000 people in this room talking about this. And the one thing everybody agreed upon was that this system was unjust and that we needed to fix it. So that's the upside. The downside is we have done extraordinary damage to our cities and communities. And so we have a lot to talk about what that reform will look like. Thank you. Okay, so wow, thank you for that, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> that was that you you packed quite a punch in a very it made short. No sense. <laughs> Ask me to back up at all. <laughs> um, and I know that we're gonna have a great Q and A. Um, but just before we jump into the Q and A, I want to you know since we have all of these experts here, I thought I would ask them a couple of questions. And um, I have a couple of directed questions, but I, any of the panelists, you should feel free to jump out. Um, so in particular, I wanted to ask um, Elizabeth. I wanted you to maybe if you could unpack a little bit about uh, what Heather touched on about the roots of mass incarceration. So what are the most important reasons um, why, you know, why are we where we are right now? What are the roots of this mass incarceration crisis? Um, and then I thought, Phil, maybe you could weigh in a little bit about um, what do you think about the current efforts right, to reform this crisis or uh, maybe the policy dimensions of that? And then I think for all of the panelists, if you want to maybe tackle this, um, 
what do you think that the central issue is, right, about why we are in this mess right now, right? And then how do we how do we move beyond that? And I know that's a really big question, and it may be one that's better suited for a Q and A. So maybe we can we can start off with Liz. So I, I think okay, this is on. You can hear me. First, Leah, thank you for inviting me to come. It's always an honor to to sit on a panel with Heather Thompson, who is um, a close friend and, and my advisor. She's had a, a huge impact on my work and, and through her work has made my own work relevant in the field of history. When I started doing this, this research on federal crime control policy 10 years ago, we had to make a case for why examining mass incarceration was historically relevant. And Heather opened up new ground for a generation of historians to begin to examine these issues. And as she said, um, you know, three years ago, she had to make the case for why mass incarceration is the issue of the 21st century. And now it's very evident. We don't have to kind of make those kind of arguments anymore. So we can begin to get into the questions that really matter. I think the origins of how we got into this mess are, relate to the second question, right, about how we can get out of it. Uh, mass incarceration for me is deeply rooted in the history of racism and inequality in the United States. As Heather mentioned, there's a historical tendency in American history to respond to the expansion of citizenship and rights for African Americans, in particular with criminalization and incarceration. So we saw this, as Heather talked about, immediately after the Civil War, we have the rise of black codes in the southern states. New laws were created that targeted free people. We have the rise of the convict lease system. Flash forward 100 years later, and we have Lyndon Johnson calling a war on crime, uh, which was very much rooted in policymakers' own <coughs> fear about some of the demographic changes that had occurred um, in the post-war period. You have, for the first time, cities, major urban centers are verging on African-American majorities and, and you have more African-Americans concentrated in the central city and white Americans moving out to the suburbs. These, the, these populations, especially youth populations, policymakers began to refer to as social dynamite. They, they were worried even before the uprisings in 64 that, these, that this group of black youth would revolt. And really in the absence of programs which address the fundamental root, root problems of poverty, of inequality, um, major job creation programs, uh, major investment of resources into urban education systems, fixing dilapidated housing, fixing housing projects that were already beginning to deteriorate significantly by the, by the early 60s, residents revolted, they rebelled, they, they rose up, and, and incidents of police brutality really sparked that. So the, the, the kind of rise of the war on crime, Johnson's declaration of the war on crime, his decision to invest in police departments um, to help control and contain this population, prevent future uprisings, um, really kind of spiraled out of, out of control and set self-fulfilling prophecies, I think, within our policy that, as Heather beautifully laid out, criminalized generations of African-American youth and eventually low-income youth of color in, um, in vulnerable urban neighborhoods. So I, I'll end there, but we can explore some of, some of what I've brought up in the, in the Q&A. Yeah. I'm, I'm mic'd up okay. here. Sports, <laughs> sports coats are, are nice for this. Um, so thank you, thank y'all. Um, and also, I, I wonder what punishment this is that a social psychologist has to be up here with such articulate historians. <laughs> um, <coughs> this just seems unfair and I'm calling foul. Um, <coughs> So if uh, the goal is to talk a little bit or, or provide some kind of context for 
what's happening now in terms of reform on ma mass incarceration, and I specialize sort of on the front end. The center that I run um, looks at policing um, and inequality. I guess there, there are kind of four themes I'd want us to talk about, um, which sort of, I, I won't say they explode the myth, because that's, that's academic jargon, right? Like I can write a book that says it explodes the myth, but in here we can talk more, more real. Um, it, it, tell, it tells the lie, too. All right, it puts the lie to the idea that really what's going on here is a very simple story. It's not simple, okay? So <clears throat> I, I see people on here that I kind of, I think maybe I recognize a couple faces from my, my timeline on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I, I know the kinds of things that we tend to retweet, which tend to be, because we got 140 characters, they're simple stories, right? So it's about the number of nonviolent uh, drug possession arrests that are driving this kind of thing, okay? Um, and that's important to know about, because it's, it's gross, it's disgusting, and it's easy. But the story isn't quite that simple. So I, if I got four various themes. I'm kind of keep this structured in my head without having brought a pen to take notes for. Um, word to the wise on that. Um, <coughs> so one is that we have this, this legacy and this language about worthiness, right? So who are the people that we're allowed to advocate for, right, who really shouldn't have been there for in the first place, right? I'm a fan of the Innocence Project, right? But we have people who have done things that we would find reprehensible who are locked up. Do they not deserve to have advocates? And are the consequences and the causes of their incarceration not worthy of discussion? So one of the things I'd want us to be thinking about is if we're only going to focus on nonviolent, you know, drug or low-level drug offenses, what percentage of that population are we letting out? Right? It's not 80 to 90%. Right? It's not all the black people. It's not a, a, a salve for all the civil rights and, and moral injustice things that we're talking about. We're going to need to talk about, if we're going to ease prison um, populations, we're going to need to talk about letting go and, and letting out people who have committed coded violent offenses. And if we keep talking about, well, it's the nonviolent, it's the nonviolent, what we're doing is reinforcing the guiltiness and the lack of worthiness right, of violent folks. And that's going to be a problem for us because it's also more racially disparate than we'd like to think. It's not comfortable. Right? So that's one of, one of the themes is worthiness. Another theme is location. We want to manage this on a national level because it's a national crisis. Right? And so I, I, I was wading into this last night and I got in trouble for this because I have folks who are, I guess they consider themselves on my political left, who were really feeling the burn last night because of Michigan. Um, <laughs> But when, when someone like Bernie Sanders comes out and says, I want every police-involved shooting to be, I, I see the, the nods of acknowledgement, to be investigated on the federal level, I say, why? Because that won't do anybody any good for two reasons. One, you've got a jurisdictional problem, because if they're investigating on the federal level, then they don't have act, they, they can't prosecute based on state uh, statutes or local statutes. And two, there are three people in special litigation who'd be doing that, that investigation. And those folks are already overworked if they were only working in Chicago, right? You want to know why NYPD hasn't been under a consent decree? It's big, right? Too big to fail is not just about banks, okay? Um, and Heather put a, a wonderful pie chart on there. I saw everybody's phones coming out and be like, oh, I need to remember this for cocktail parties, right? You got, about, you got a couple million people in the state and local um, prisons and jails, right? And how many in, in the federal? 216,000, right? As of, I think that's a 2010 graph, right? Um, <clears throat> 216,000. So if you forgive the nonviolent drug possessions of that 216,000, those seven people are going to feel really good about themselves. <laughs> Okay? But if you want to ease the problem of mass incarceration, you need to deal with the fact that this country is set up at levels right, of responsibility for it. 
And if you're not talking seriously about that, you're simply not talking seriously. That's two themes. I got two more. Let's see if I can remember them. Um, the next one has to do with visibility and legibility. Okay. Part of the way, I mean, so you guys have talked about specific historical facts, which I don't know anything about because I'm a social scientist, right? Um, <coughs> but part of the issue um, in terms of how this has been allowed to happen is that you have a class of, of people who's been rendered invisible. One of the reasons why Black Lives Matter as a hashtag and as actual activism has been able to stick is because black lives and the social reality of it, the social ecology of it, has been rendered invisible in social, in social and, and popular media, um, but also in the ways in which we teach our history. Right? So if we're going to want to do something good with regards to social policy, and we're going we're to capitalize on the, the popular will to be doing something, we're going to need to educate folks about what it actually looks like. Because again, it's not a simple story. Right? It's not an easy thing on that front. And then the fourth theme, I got all the way there. <clears throat> I want us to have a broader and a more informed conversation around what the costs of injustice are, not just on an economic level, but also on an economic level. And here's what I mean. Um, I'm very excited to be part of a, a project with William T. Grant Foundation and the, uh, the Urban Institute. We've got longitudinal data on kids, right, on adolescents um, growing up in a southern city. And what we're finding is that the more contact they have with law enforcement before they've ever committed a crime, yeah. right? And the more contact they have with experiences that feel like racial discrimination, the more crime they commit. Injustice is criminogenic. Mm -hmm. Let me say that a different way. Injustice causes crime, mm -hmm. right? We've got two cohorts that we follow for two years and it's robust to both. So if we're gonna talk about the public safety elements of this, we're gonna talk about the expenditures, which by the way, every municipal budget in the United States that I know of, the number one most expensive expendi expenditure is current police salaries, the number two is police pensions, right? So the police occupy the top two budget spots in most of our local governances. Um, if we're gonna talk about the costs of public safety, then we need to readjust that for talking about the collateral consequences of our public safety strategies. So the, the broad theme to all four of those themes is it's become a cause celeb because of the, the shocking contrast to our values that we're able to see through cell phone videos. But if we're gonna fix the real damage that's being done to human souls and communities and groups of folks, then we need to get educated about how this is not a simple story. It's a complicated story where people who have committed violent acts have been willfully disappeared right, by social and popular media um, and the causes of, of, of their incarceration have been also rendered invisible. It creates a, a morally comfortable space for us to reside in that we have to willfully trouble if we're going to actually fix these kinds of things. So hopefully that sets up a conversation. Oh, yeah. That's heavy. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll toss the question out there, but I do want to, given just for the sake of time, I think I do want to open up to the Q&A, but I, I do want to reiterate that question about, you know, what is the most central thing about this entire mass incarceration, you know, quagmire, this mass, this, this you know, the civil rights problem of the 21st century? Um, and then how do we begin to address it? But why don't we go ahead and open up to Q&A, because I know the audience must have lots and lots of questions. So if you can just do us a favor and as you ask your question is um, make sure that you speak into the microphone. So yeah. We're going to take from you. <laughs> yeah. Can I just say one thing just about that? That's a great question. 
and I think we should open it up. But the question about what is the most important thing or what is the takeaway, it actually connects to the last thing that Phil said, which is um, that you said it's not easy to fix. Well, one of the reasons it's not easy to fix is because we've got to be very honest about why we're here in the first place. And we can talk about Lyndon Johnson, and we can talk about certain policies, and we can talk about stop and frisk, and we can talk about mandatory minimums. But what no one really wants to talk about <coughs> is that this was a policy choice. It was actively done because it actively benefited certain people over others, and that certain people story is a deeply racialized story. And so at some level, one of the most difficult things about having the reform discussion is because it has to also be a discussion about white supremacy and white privilege. And frankly, to say either one of those terms in Congress, I can just assure you that, that people kind of look horrified at you, like you know, it's, uh, it's something terrible was just dropped on the floor in front of everybody. But, but that's, that is the centrally most important thing, because frankly, it's the only thing that explains why we do this time and time and time again. So we could reform this, and we could reduce you know, police forces, and we could get rid of the drug laws, and we, we, could, even, we could even deal with violent uh, quote unquote offenders, which I hate, um, as well as nonviolent. But until we deal with this overtly, and frankly, until white people start telling the truth about what they all know, which is the, the, the privilege that they have in this. They all know when they have a 14-year-old daughter like I have that the likelihood of her being pulled over and arrested is less than somebody else. Until white people tell the truth about that, we're going to fix this temporarily, but we're, then we're going to do it again and again and again and again. So that's, that's really the, the fundamental issue, I think. And, and uh, you know, at least for me, I, I've started just shouting it because I think that you can't not talk about that anymore. Anyway. <laughs> so we have questions. Yeah, one over here. Hi. Actually, my name is Alexander. I'm a BU graduate and uh, running for an office actually related to this uh, Suffolk County Sheriff. So while I'm campaigning right now and getting myself into ballot, so I go a lot to uh, minority groups, and they all suffer from this. Some of them actually they have Cory and they cannot even vote, like you said. So, like seriously, like you said, Dr. Thompson, now we have to educate the minorities. We have to educate the black African American about their right to choose and they have to choose the right path. So in order we have to definitely educate them because they're actually the decision maker that they get these elected officials that they have priorities as we spoke about. So so in order to cut this and I think we should educate more minorities um, to change the system. Th that's how we're going to come up to it. You mean, you mean um, so African-American politicians, do you mean? Or do you mean? We're talking who elect the. The people in the streets who are voting for these people? Exactly. So we need to educate them. Because most of them, they don't know. They just elect so-and-so because they feel that they're going to be on their side. But they're not. So I, I, I sound. I mean, this is, I, I, I speak from reality. I, I've been campaigning now for a while, and I talked to many people, and they all said, well, we want to change, but we can't, because they cannot even vote. They don't have the right to vote. Right. So, thank right. you. Other questions? Yeah, there's a question back here, and then. Hi, um, 
Kate Jewell. Hi, Heather. Hey, Kate. Hi, Leah. Um, so I have a question. So I'm a professor of history at Fitchburg State, which is in the Mass State College system, and we have a criminal justice professional program. Mm -hmm. So in my U.S. survey, which is usually the only history class that they take, um, you know, that's the only time that their butts are going to be in seats in front of me, these future uh, cops and corrections officers. So I'm wondering from the panel, what are the things that I can get across to them as I'm teaching them, you know, U.S. history, 1877 to present? What are some, what are the key things about this that I can translate to them? Well, building off of Heather's beautiful, beautiful point, I mean, it, you could frame the entire survey class as a history of white supremacy in a way. Um, and really, and really make and hope to get tenure. With <laughs> <laughs> well, this is okay. So I'm modest proposal. <laughs> you don't have to tell. You don't have to be explicit about that. <laughs> it's very easy to tell U.S. history as a history of of, of inequality, inequality, racism, and 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 white supremacy. I think, especially for for criminal justice practitioners, it is essential that they understand. The, convict the, the rise of the convict lease system and the criminalization that we see in the late 19th and early 20th century. I know I keep on emphasizing this, but David Oshinsky's Worse from Slavery, I teach that book in, in almost in as many classes as I possibly can because I, don't, I think that once you understand the profound racial dimensions of the new regime of control that emerges using the criminal justice system as proxy following emancipation, then you, then what mass, mass incarceration today appears in an entirely different way. And it doesn't appear in this vacuum. It appears as part of this kind of longer, I mean, it, not to say that the system today is not historically distinct, it is, but it is another episode in racism, racial domination, white supremacy in the US. And also just to talk about how policing can be, right. policing, you know, th there's nothing inherently wrong, inherently by definition with policing. Right? I mean, if someone harms you, you might want to call the police. The question is proportionate policing, just policing, fair policing. And, and, you know, that might be a controversial statement, but for my criminal justice people that come into my class, they've already, I mean, they've decided they're going to be cops. Well, I mean, dispense the law evenly among all communities. Uh, just, you know, be, uh, be parsimonious in the way that you dispense your policing. But how you do that in a history classroom is you can show the myriad examples where that was exactly not what was done, including today. I tell my students all the time, I have a big survey and I say, you know, they're all, the, they're all kind of the hang them high variety, you know, do the crime, do the time, everybody comes in there, they're very hard. But you just have to ask one question, which is, if the Detroit Police Department came in here right now, and stopped and frisked all of you, and they all start kind of giggling and feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Um, how many of you would be, you know, down at the precinct tonight? Now, uh, you know. But then the next question is just as important. And how many of you would be out by midnight because your mom or dad have bailed you out? And it's this kind of uncomfortable truth-telling about the justice system that I find so important in public education. It isn't that people don't know this. They just have to be reminded that they know it, I think. But a good mic. Uh, uh, you haven't gotten yet to what you think ought to be done now from the point of view of policy. Um, and you did mention being in a big auditorium with the Koch brothers and everything, and everybody saying, everybody agreeing it was unjust. But as I understand it, the Koch brothers' interest in incarceration is about its cost. And if you were to do the kind of programs that I think you would need if, if you were going to de incarcerate people, 
I think you need to put people who need to be in, in mental health, with me, give, giving mental health help, you need to give them mental health help. And I think you need to help people who might have a tendency sure. to go back to drugs. You have to give them some help. And those programs are expensive. So I worry about the Coke approach to this, which I see as a little bit like deinstitutionalization in, uh, in the mental yeah. uh, thing field quite a while ago, that, oh, look at all the money we're going right. to save. And I think that that's a, a, to me, that's a problematic Approach. It's deeply so, uh, problematic. This is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, in the in the the reform debate. So yes, everyone agrees what the problem is. Where everything begins to fall apart, and it's deeply alarming, is in the how do we repair the damage phase, and how do we then deal with social needs, social ills, social desires in in phase two and I had a very interesting talk for example with the Texas legislator who we were all on the same page on this panel about you know reform and da 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 and I said yeah I just suspect we disagree on what ha needs to happen next he says no we don't and I said well what about education for example we know the studies are clear that for example if you graduate from high school and have the opportunity for higher education you know your chances of being in the system are much less what about education oh well we agree on that and I said, no, I, I am, I, really, we do? We agree about the need to reinvest in public education? He says, hell no. <laughs> because of course what he wants to invest in is charter schools and private education. So the really hard work is actually yet to happen. But that's not to minimize the profoundly important sea change in our public discourse that's happened. Sure, the Koch brothers want to save money, but to be honest with you in this group, we also had evangelical Christians who were just, just absolutely, um, I can't express to you how passionate they were about the, mor the, the, the immorality of this system, the injustice of this system and its disproportionality. Um, we also had people there that were formerly incarcerated speaking out and being very clear about what they needed. So I think the hard work is yet to come, but you're, you're very right to be worried about what that's going to look like because we can't save money on this. That money came from somewhere else. And you can look at this in a state-by-state -state level. The dollars that were in publication, publication, education, literally being moved into incarceration. I mean, not even subtly. So we're not going to save a dime. And in fact, to undo this damage, to undo the trauma, to undo the lack of education, the lack of jobs, it's actually going to be probably more expensive. So if I, if I can to that, to, and Jenny, your point, um, I think it's really important to, to distinguish this in a couple of different ways. One is the difference between policy changes for new intake and the other, uh, and, and part and parcel to that is anything that's going to uh, work about fixing the damage that's been done. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been doing some uh, work with California, which is in, ironically and, and oddly, those three strikes is still on the books, um, is, is trying to be a leader in this area. And, uh, um, and the uh, LA County uh, jail system is the largest mental health purveyor uh, in the single health mental health purveyor in the world. Um, if you were to give mental health services of a kind significantly above what's available through public works to everybody who needs them incarcerated before they were incarcerated and uh, trends for services reducing um, criminal activity were to hold, you would save significant dollars. You would save money. You do that statewide and you save millions of dollars. The front end then, yeah. If you were then to give services for the people who have already been incarcerated to make sure that they stay out of prison and jails, you would lose more than twice that much. 
So the difference between changing it moving forward and fixing the damage done is a huge, it's a, it's a massive, massive difference. Um, so when we talk about um, things from a, a cost-benefit um, process, there are real, I think there are real advantages to it. Again, I think it's not quite as simple as, you know, you want to make the moral argument um, and, you know, money be damned. There are viable economic arguments to be made, right? But we've got to be clear about what are the, what are the elements of it that we're going to prioritize. Because I, I find it incredibly problematic that we would change um, uh, low-level drug uh, <coughs> offenses without then <coughs> giving compensation to the people who've been incarcerated for years and ba damaged by that, and yet the economic argument says we do it going forward and we can't afford to do it going backwards, mm -hmm. right? Which will create generational uh, racial, uh, racial concerns. There's another part, but I'll wait till there's another question to go okay. get in there. But so yeah. a lot of questions. Sorry, mm -hmm. sorry. So So I hope this follows up nicely with the policy question you just asked. I'm struggling now, the more and more I learn about the history of mass incarceration. I know how important it is to use history to influence how we then go forward in changing it. It seems to me the problem is that it's just completely racist in intent. So I don't get how to use history to, to really ask people to shape policies in a in a, using a lens that is ra a, a racial lens, you know? I feel like policy and history has taught us that what, what's happening is it, they've tried to become colorblind, and, and that's not gonna change this, because the intentionality is so, so specifically racist. So, so how do, what's, what's next? And I ask this in a bit selfish way, because I'm about to graduate, and I just don't know how, you know, policymakers don't wanna hear necessarily about racism and then write it in, 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 in on the bill, I don't. So that's, I guess, my question is, how do you, how do you shape policy in, in an anti-racist way? That's a great question. That's <laughs> it. Not all at once now. <laughs> right. That's that's the million-dollar question. There is a. I, I I hope I'm not too optimistic to say that I do think even that is changing a little bit, at least in this discussion. One of the, um, you know. I think policymakers are talking about racial disproportionality, and I think they're being pretty clear about it. Um, I actually think that history can be deeply helpful in that conversation, um, not to sort of say, well, it's doomed, y'all, because we've done this from time immemorial, but actually to say, yeah, we have this long history of doing this, but here are moments in American history where we've actually made enormous strides in undoing it and remedying it. So it isn't just that the history is a negative history or a downer history or a bummer history, despite what it may sound like today. I mean, this history is also a history <coughs> of the black freedom struggle. It is also a, a history of Head Start. It's also a history of programs that were very expressly and deliberately designed policies to mitigate against racial disproportionality and racism. So it's not that these are not policy questions, it's about pick your policy, and we can pick the policy that is sort of inherently and historically uh, racially uh, you know, discriminatory, or we have a long history of policies that are not. And I think you as a young policymaker could do an enormous service to policy circles to point to know enough about what those were to really advocate for policies as remedy as opposed to policies as continuing the harm. Uh, from the macro to the micro, um, I was thinking about uh, just since people who are incarcerated are invisible, 
what is the opportunity for restoring some elements of citizenship like voting rights to the incarcerated? Is that just not even on the table at all? I mean, it's, it's certainly on the table. It's part of, um, it's, it's very likely to be part of the Democratic Party plat uh, platform going forward. Um, it's going to be part of the national conversation as voting rights have been under siege everywhere. Um, the question is, how do you make it a compelling argument at a time? And, and this is one of the things I think that it's going to be important for us to look, look at as opposed to Trump's hair or the size of various body parts. Um, <coughs> this, this is a thing to look at, is <coughs> how are we framing the conversation around voting rights? And I think the framing on the progressive side is unlikely to be sustainable in a, a general cross-party uh, context, right? And the reason is, is because it's, all, it's been rooted in terms of, well, we've made all these uh, historical gains, um, we can't go back. And what we find, I mean, again, I'm a social psychologist, what we find in all these surveys is when you, when you frame things in terms of not losing the past historical gains around race, it makes people feel like, yeah, we have come a long way. Which means we don't have to keep doing this which was precisely the logic in the majority decision, striking down the provision of the, of the VRA. So um, it's on the table. People are paying attention to it. Um, and re-enfranchisement uh, re of formerly incarcerated individuals is something that's going to be important. But we, ha we weren't paying close enough attention during the census to get it right um, when we were uh, doing redistricting. We weren't paying close enough attention um, during all the state-level um, <coughs> initiatives that continue to move in the, in the wrong direction on this stuff. So if we're going to be messaging about it, then we've got to get the messaging right. And that, to me, that also brings up an, another thing that's back to the impossible question that was the last question that you'll notice that uh, Heather took a bullet for us. Um, <coughs> um, which th thank you very much for that. I appreciate you, you jumping in front of that one. Um, <coughs> If you, if you want to start putting together themes of what white supremacy and anti-black and uh, anti-brown policies look like, one of the themes that is scariest to me as someone who works between the micro and the macro policy level is a retreat from public spaces. So what's happened is the national conscience has gotten it right. That's good news. Right? Actual bigotry is in, it's, it's well, in, except it's now running for president. But prior to that, um, actual bigotry is in decline in all kinds of surveys and all kinds of measurable ways, not just people learning the right sets of things to say. And so broadly accountable public spaces belong to a truly democratized sensibility. I'm not saying that we've, we've achieved it, but a sensibility. And what you see in lockstep with that, historically, is a retreat of public funds into private spaces. So as soon as, as, as we get the public, public gone. Right? I think about you know, what that, that great wise scholar, Eddie Murphy, um, when he was doing uh, Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, it's like, <coughs> as, as soon as I move in, y'all move away. Um, <coughs> but that's not just a, a question about gentrification. It's a general question about investment in public goods and public funds. Right? Um, <coughs> and so if we're going to be talking about voting rights and the restoration of voting rights, um, I think that that has to be part of a broader conversation about how we reclaim the public as a, as a public good. Right? And how we, how we allow that to become federalized and not just on the state and local level. Because progressives are going to be losing the state and local level for lots of both logistic and, and conceptual reasons for a long, long time. But if we, if we reclaim those public spaces, I think there's, there's real chances of doing good there. Well, and I also want just to add something, I think, because one of the things you said really struck me, which is the invisibility of the incarcerated. Um, and this actually ties back to your question about policy. So um, 
one of the reasons why the incarcerated are so invisible is because the policymakers never ask the incarcerated what they think should happen or who they are. And I think the assumption is that you know they're not educated. They they wouldn't know what to say. You know they wouldn't be they wouldn't be welcome at that you know luncheon in that discussion. The fact of the matter is that is also changing. There's a really important organization right now called Just Leadership USA, and the uh, head of it is a friend of mine, Glenn Martin. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, no policy school or policy endeavor should be talking about incarceration unless. Glenn or someone that works for Just Leadership USA is sitting at the table at the same time. And it's, it's again, it's not tokenism. It's not, well, you know, we can't talk about this. It's actually because there is, there is such a gulf, a chasm of lack of knowledge about what needs to be done, what can be done, what should be done, what needs to be done. So I hope that too, I, I feel like I'm being the Pollyanna-ish one up here today, but um, I think that that's changing. I think because because just leadership, for example, is forcing itself into these conversations and saying, I mean, shame. You know, Glenn Martin shows up at the White House and he is given a, a, a you know, it's like the scarlet letter um, that he has to wear around the White House all day because he's formally incarcerated, and he takes out this massive ad letter um, to the to to President Obama and basically talks about how this is creating a second class citizen. So, you know, good for him, but, but it's important for us as policy makers and scholars to say, no, we, we can't come up with this policy. We, we just simply can't unless we start talking to people who know. <laughs> I can't resist an anecdote before getting to my question. It was a response to what, it, to what Heather just said, but I mean the Massachusetts story, which I don't think is very well known. Um, the Massachusetts did not uh, disfranchise felons until the end of the 1990s, right? Uh, convicted felons could vote. And what happened there was that actually people who were incarcerated formed a lobbying organization to try to express their views and indicate what their needs were and make appeals to the governor. And the response of the <laughs> governor was to sort of introduce a constitutional amendment to disfranchise them, okay, which passed overwhelmingly. Which governor? Salucci. Um, so it's a, a case in point. Yeah. But, uh, the, I cling to, to, to a, a, a perhaps antiquated belief that understanding the causes will help us figure out solutions. <laughs> now, that may not be true. Um, it's, it's the historian's credo. And here's what I'm grappling with, which is well, you know, the basic story here, and we all know this, is, is that the United States is a huge outlier, right? We know that. But I'm trying to understand the outlierness. Okay, of it. Um, we are not the only society, as far as I know, that suffers from white racism and white supremacy, um, or, of, or whether it's white versus black, or you know, there many societies have deeply sort of racist currents, and then many societies uh, have racial or ethnic minorities that are discriminated against. I mean, we could go through, you know, various kinds of, you know, um, but somehow we've ended up with this incredible mass incarceration problem, which doesn't just go in a one-on-one -on -one line to the fact that, that our society is, is racist or, or you know, that there was migration you know, at a certain time. So I, can you help, in a comparative framework, can you help us understand that better? I, I know you can, I, each of you can. I mean, I'd love to say something about that just because I've had the opportunity 
lately to do so many of these talks in other countries. And so I've really had this opportunity to both observe what this looks like in other places, but also get questions from people who live there. And, and what I want to say is that in, in one sense, we aren't an outlier. So for example, I just gave a talk in Zurich and the Swiss have this idea that they are so, you know, they're, they're, they have a totally different system than we do, right? Because they incarcerate hardly anybody and they're just much more benevolent than we are. But of course, no sooner did someone say that in the audience of my talk when someone else stands up infuriated and say, that's just not true. Your prisons are filled with all brown people and they're all immigrants and it's just not true. So on the one hand, we aren't an outlier. In every country, racial disproportionality is a serious, and in some countries, a deeply glaring problem. So that's number one. To the extent that we are in terms of scale, that's complicated. But the closest example I found to what that actually was like somewhere else was South Africa. And the difference was that after the South African freedom struggle and revolution, there really was uh, a putting in power in places of power uh, black South Africans. And so it's, so we have now surpassed South Africa in terms of racial, uh, in terms of the number of people we incarcerate. But imagine if there would have been that uprising in South Africa and then there would have been the backlash to it. I know that's sort of counterfactual history. But, but it, we had something pretty profound happen after the black freedom struggle here in the 60s, which was a deeply determined, and, and Leah's book, I mean, a, a real, a, a concerted movement of conservatives to alter that discourse in profound ways. That, um, so we, we, had an, we had an outlier freedom struggle and an outlier backlash to it, perhaps. But we are not an outlier in the phenomenon. I mean, every country I've seen this. I also think in, in terms of thinking about scale, in many ways, mass incarceration is, and, and surveillance, policing, security, is the kind of primary domestic industry that emerges after the decline of domestic manufacturing. So the correction sector, I think, is the, is the largest, you, largest employer employs more than, than GM, Walmart, mm -hmm. and some other humongous company combined. Um, and, the, and as Heather showed in, the, in, in some of her slides, the prisons are located in rural areas and have become kind of a Band-Aid um, for, for majority white and, and, and in some, yeah, and in, in, some, in some places in California, um, Latino communities who are suffering from joblessness and lack of industry. So prisons have been kind of a band-aid for our very real economic problems. And I think in, in part that, that has to do, um, that answers that question about, about scale and, and, and why this has become such a massive um, part of, of US economy and society. The difference between the kind of warehousing of, of um, primarily low-income citizens and low-income citizens of color in prisons today than in the earlier period is that labor isn't being, not, not to say that prison labor isn't a part of incarceration today, but value is extracted from, simply from bodies being warehoused in these facilities um, and, and the guards and the, um, the entire kind of apparatus around them. So ju uh, just a, a note on that, obviously I'm not a historian um, <coughs> and the, uh, our collective memory isn't housed in the brain. Um, uh, but things to note uh, in terms of just broad statistics about outlier status, 
Um, we're outliers, and Heather, Heather uh, put this perfectly, I'll add a couple of grace notes to it. We're outliers in some dimensions in terms of the, the raw numbers, like we're just freakish and weird. Um, in terms of the rates of disparity benchmarked on um, diversity within the population, we're not that much outliers, right? So it is the combination of the fact that we have so much demographic diversity and that we lock up so many people that makes us look so much different than the rest of the world. I'd also say that as we've had a, a, a boom in the prison and carceral industry, right, that happened at exactly the time that we're taking uh, <coughs> the ability to exploit certain groups of people's labor away. And so you gotta, again, I don't wanna tell a causal story here because I'm not a historian and I can't do a randomized control trial, um, but you gotta think that we go from slavery to Jim and Jane Crow to mass incarceration in a way that it's something about the way the economies uh, of scale in the United States are set up, right? That it's because we had such a, a large slavery system, right? And we're not set up to do this any other kind of way. And I, I give for anecdote again, um, Ferguson, right? Which is a small area, just a suburban area right outside of a major metropolitan area. And when DOJ comes in, and they're still deciding whether or not they're gonna go along with the consent decree, like they've got a choice. Um, <coughs> That when a DOJ comes in and says, you guys are engaging in economic racism because you're exploiting this group of people, the response from the city government, for those of you who weren't following it deeply and closely, was, well, but if we're not racist, we're not financially solvent. We have no way to make money if we're not charging black people for being black. So what are we gonna do? The little known story about this is that the Ferguson City Council looked in to the prospect of becoming bidders for a small local jail. Right? So it's not an accident where these things are happening, that they're coming on the back of economic um, downturn in rural uh, communities that look a particular way, um, and that it's happening as we're transitioning from one mode of racial exploitation to another mode of exploitation. Again, I don't know that that's a causal story. Somewhat smarter than me who does history type stuff, one of y'all, please do that book. Um, but it seems non-coincidental. It's not random. Yeah, so we have probably questions, time for two more questions. So Okay, in the back, Hi, Patrick Johnson, um, <clears throat> recent graduate of the Kennedy School. I grew up in the South, born in the 60s, in between the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And in the small town that I grew up in, <clears throat> the town's sort of been hollowed out. When I go back there in Arkansas, whites control just about every aspect of that community, you know, from you know, sheriff to, you know, the people that work in the post office to the people who work in the courthouse. Um, <clears throat> having been one of the few African-American males that have escaped that community, gone off uh, work in the tech sector, I see manifestations of that privilege throughout my, my lifetime. In fact, I worked for a large corporation in the tech sector big multi-billion dollar company, I would go into meetings and see, maybe there's 15 to 20 people in a meeting, all white. Whites seem to see absolutely nothing wrong with that degree of privilege. Mm -hmm. They see nothing wrong with that lack of diversity. And so <clears throat> how do we unhinge this privilege? I mean, this is a tough thing. This, we're, we're dealing with loss here. In order for us to fix this problem, whites have to acknowledge that this privilege exists. They have to acknowledge that, hey, th they're going to have to embrace diversity. 
It turns out that the company that I left before I came here, <coughs> the issue of diversity is so bad now that they have now declared that every other hire will have to be a person of color. And so when you, when you force that kind of mandate, now you're going to get backlash. Mm -hmm. And the backlash mm -hmm. is because they have been so blind to their privilege. And this system of privilege has been playing out for so long that it is now at an epidemic portion and they're probably facing lawsuits. So my question for you, and I think it's a difficult question because I understand that you're gonna have to tell people that, hey, count off by three, Johnny and Bob, you gotta go and we gotta bring in Joaquim and, you know. Uh, so this is a really difficult thing. And, uh, you know, we can talk about all of the, uh, we can talk way at this level, but at the, at the, at the at the very basic level, you sort of have to unhinge this privilege from this American society. So I just want to get your, your sort of reflections on, on that. Amen. <coughs> I mean, you know, this is what I was saying earlier, that I don't think we can have this discussion unless we have that discussion. We can't talk about undoing mass incarceration. <coughs> we can't talk about any of this without getting at those root issues and 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 actually i think that the sort of the, the the very complicated answer to what you raise is that we can't do it at the level of the tech center that you know we got to start in the kindergarten you know and so for, and and we can't expect that it's always got to be the black folks pushing the white folks to do this white folks are the ones who have to step up too and become really vocal about this kind of injustice and this kind of society we're creating. But again, by the time we get to the tech center, by the time we get to, by the time we get there and people are, you know, you got to lose your job. So someone, no, it has to be here so that actually we have demands on our basic education level first. But that seems so pie in the sky to people, but the historians here would say, it ain't so pie in the sky. There have been moments in American history where even polling data for you social scientists showed a lot of people really on board with this idea that there should be equal opportunity in education or that there that every child should not go to bed hungry. Or I mean, we've had moments. Right now we are in such a deeply punitive, punitive moment that I mean, now our stakes are so high, we just have to simply speak out, I think, right? That, we're, that this is not the society we want. And I do think that white people in particular have an obligation to do it because they're the ones who have benefited from it the most. I want to add some context to that. So when we think about what's going to happen when we, we have to, to engage white privilege, when we have to <coughs> engage the, those spots of, of concentrated opportunity, um, it's hard because you, you talk about people losing the things that they've got, right? And it feels like well, there's no other way around it and I'm not disagreeing. Um, but frequently what gets lost is that we haven't socialized, so that's about socializing the gains, which means that some people who are getting don't, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's how we think about affirmative action and the court cases and yada yada, um, which God forbid what the heck is gonna happen with the court right now. Um, but we don't talk about how we have socialized some of the losses but not labeled it as racial. Right? Recall that the economic downturn was born disproportionately on the backs of, of black and brown people who, and, and because it wasn't racialized, we didn't have a housing response that said, if you don't protect these kinds of communities, all of us can lose all our money. 
none of us are retiring. We're all at, at age, all you know, 90-something, exactly, living with a roommate, right? <laughs> Sell, selling off our, our things on Etsy. That's what's about to happen next. Um, <clears throat> so if you socialize the losses that are disproportionately felt by black and brown communities, then you incentivize structures that are likely to be the, the exact same things that seem like um, they have been part of the decline in, in the violent crime rate. Right? It's because there have been black communities that despite hypersegregation and the rest have been able to, to rise up a bit. It's maybe even black entrepreneurship that has been part of the engine for this that we've all benefited from. So as we're thinking about how do we engage with white supremacy, especially in elite spaces, right? I think it's important that it's not just about socializing the gains, it's about socializing the losses and labeling the socialized losses as such. Okay, so I think we have, we have time for one more quick question and I still have Zachary's had your hand up for a while. So if we can grab the microphone. I'm a little worried this question isn't good enough to be the last one, but um, <laughs> Dr. Thompson, you've talked a lot about um, the change in the narrative and I think um, some people have, have pointed out that it seems to be, if you look at the, the bill that seems to get weaker every day in Congress right now um, and things happening at the state level, that it's been a narrative that's changed around drugs and around shoplifting and around things like that. And I was wondering what everyone's perspective was, because uh, as was pointed out, that's not what most of mass incarceration crisis is. How do we change the narrative around things which are less low-hanging fruit, and especially around things that might not be violent intrinsically, but have been coded violent. And I think of like burglaries and robberies of unarmed, of I'm sorry, of unoccupied buildings, which are coded violent and then allowed to be part of this violence narrative. How do we change the conversation around those things that are, are less low hanging fruit? I think just part of it is is thinking about the severity of our punishment. So we have 700, about 700,000 people serving life without parole sentences. I think people have thought about that as another form of, of the death penalty, and I think that we need to, we can begin to rethink um, why we punish people in the way that we do and why we keep people locked up for as long as, as we do. I think it's also important to, to really deal with, and this we've touched upon this, but in this reform moment, in a moment when Bernie Sanders can say during a debate that he wants to decarcerate, or he wants to bring us down, so that by the end of his first term he'll bring us down to a level where we're not the, the world's uh, largest incarcerator. We're, we're embarking on this decarceration moment. I do think that that is, that is certain, and we need to think about what our reentry programs are going to look like. And I think part of, part of it is we have a responsibility to not only provide people with job training, but to provide people with actual jobs. I worry that because of the cost of reentry, as Phil mentioned, this is that this can easily teeter to the private sector, that this can become privatized, that reentry will then become um, another kind of layer of surveillance and incarceration in a way. They're counting um, on it. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, so we we need to be cognizant and to keep alive that the that that. <coughs> This, in this reform moment, these other systems with Prop 47, realignment in California, decarceration, other forms of the same thing can emerge in their, kind of in their wake. So I think part of it is, again, thinking about how we're gonna deal with and being committed to supporting and, and investing resources in reintegrating people back into society after they've served their sentences. And the other thing is dealing with just 
why is it that we are so that our life without parole population is bigger than the entire um, prison population in Japan? It just doesn't make sense in a, in in the land of the free. Well, we can also just we can also just um, take people at their word. If you if you really care about violence, right? You don't want violent criminals running around. If you really care about violence, then let's have a serious discussion about what's made this country so violent. And so part of the way I think we do that, I, I just keep, I, this phrase just keeps coming to mind about telling the truth about things. Like just call out what's really going on and so then we can have a discussion. I'm all for public safety. I don't want to go down the street and be robbed. I don't want to be mugged. I don't want to be raped. I think public safety is a wonderful thing. So let's have a real discussion about public safety. And when you take away people's jobs, their education, their parents, their house, their food, their shelter, you do not increase public safety. So I would say to community, when I, and I do say to, to, the, to sometimes the most resistant audiences who say, but we can't let out the violent people. I say, you want, if you want public safety, we've got to change this. You can't lock somebody up for 20 years and have them come out and be a healthy, happy human being. So if you care about public safety, we have to take back the amount of time we're giving people. We have to treat people like human beings when they are locked up, if they're going to be locked up. And we can't have mass incarceration. Because when you destroy communities, you look at that map I showed you of Detroit, and there's a reason why nobody wants to go into Brewer Park. Nobody wants to go into Brewer Park because it's dangerous. There's a reason why no one wants to live in North Philadelphia, because it's dangerous. But why is it dangerous? Because there's no schools, there's no houses, there's no grown-ups, there's no, right? There's no opportunity. So I'm all, I think we can have this discussion about violent crime, but we got to own it. We got to, we have to dominate that conversation about violent crime and not let the people who are the fear mongers dominate that conversation. Uh, we all want public safety, so let's get rid of mass incarceration. I think that's that's a thousand percent it. That's a thousand percent it. Um, if somebody wants to make the argument that we need to keep our, our streets safe, um, and then you say, all right, great, make these streets safe, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> the streets that these folks are coming from. If you're serious about keeping the streets safe, then do it this way. And that's exactly right. And what we know makes streets safe is investment in public spaces. It's not keeping individuals locked up and turning them into, into folks who have no hope um, and no hope of reentry in a successful and, and gameful way. That's it. That's the way to go. Okay, so on that note, which is I we've think a solved it. Note. Yep, yeah, yeah. We've done. Settled easy, it. Easy. Thank you all for coming out. <laughs> it's finished. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they asking us what mm -hmm. to do?